New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Morning, everyone. It's, it's, a, it's never a normal day unless I have something new to worry about, and um, now I'm really worried. This is only Thursday. The hands are in the air. We're dancing. We're turning around. And what I want to know from you charismatic people is where do we go on Friday? And I, I need to know today to get myself in the right frame of mind. Um, we're going to turn to the Word of God, 1 Kings chapter 19 today, 1 Kings chapter 19. We're beginning in the middle of the Elijah story, but we'll set the context for it uh, in just a moment. So at the moment, we're just going to, to read. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. <clears throat> he ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Amen. God so loves the world. <coughs> God loves the creation He has made, Monday morning's message. God loves all the human creatures He has made and looks to bless them. That was Tuesday. God loves people even in the midst of wickedness and dysfunction. That was yesterday. And today, God loves people in the crucible of ministry. We've moved on now from the time of Abraham and Jacob. We've met Moses. We've uh, moved on through the period of the judges. We find ourselves now in the period of the Israelite uh, monarchy. King Saul has come and gone. King David has come and gone. King Solomon has lost the house of for the house of David, most of the kingdom, the sons of David still rule in the south, 
in Judah, but the northern territory is ruled by a succession of other dynasties. Uh, one of these dynasties is founded by Omri, Harold mentioned him last night, and then comes Ahab, and Ahab marries a, a woman from Phoenicia up on the coastline whose name is Jezebel, and between them, Ahab and Jezebel lead the Israelites into terrible idolatry. Uh, there was idolatry there before. Jeroboam, the first king, you may remember, builds a couple of golden bull calves for the Israelites to worship. But with Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, the whole thing goes to a new level because Jezebel brings with her from her hometown of Sidon the worship of Baal, as he is named in the Old Testament, full name Baal-Hadad, uh, an ancient storm god who is prayed to to bring the rains, to bring fertility on the land. He's often pictured in the form of a bull. Sometimes he's pictured as in the right-hand image, uh, wearing horns and grasping a thunderbolt because he's a storm god, right? So this is how he's pictured. It was very easy for the Israelites who already worshipped the bull calves of Jeroboam just to add this other level of idolatry on. And so we find ourselves in this period of northern Israelite history in an utterly apostate culture. And into this culture, or rather out of this culture really, Elijah is called to be God's prophet in the situation. And Elijah confronts King Ahab about his wicked ways, and he tells him that because of his wicked ways, there is going to be a drought on the land. <clears throat> Why a drought? Well, because a storm god is supposed to deliver rain. <clears throat> and so what we're now seeing here is, is a, kind of a, a kind of a test. Can the storm god deliver rain? Or is it the living God of Israel actually who controls the weather systems of uh, the world? So Elijah says there's going to be a drought. There will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word, which is a way of saying, you, O Baal, are not actually in charge. The Lord God is in charge. And the way the story then goes on demonstrates this same truth. Further, there is a drought but if you know this story, you will know that the living God, because He is the living God, is well able to look after Elijah even in the midst of the drought. And He does this not just in Israel, He does this up in Queen Jezebel's hometown. If you, you've got to think that if Baal was going to have any center of operation, Anywhere where he had complete power, it would surely be up on the Phoenician coast where Jezebel came from because Jezebel brought this Baal worship with her. So, is God just a local God or is this the living God who created the, the whole cosmos? How does Baal relate to the living God, Yahweh, I am who I am? Well, First Kings 17 tells you, it tells you that even up there in Sidon, God looks after Elijah, and along with them, He looks after the widow of Zarephath and her son. They eat and they drink, even though the drought affects that whole region as well. And when the widow's son dies, he is raised from the dead through Elijah because biblically, God is not just the God of the living, He is also the God of the dead. And 1 Kings 17 says, really, 
This is the God who is actually in charge, even in the midst of death. And he remains in charge in chapter 18. Just flip past this next slide, which uh, describes what happens with the, the boy. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. It's quite matter of fact, you notice. There's no great uh, emphasis. It's just the most obvious thing in the world. Of course, Elijah's God can raise the dead. Of course he can. In chapter 18, the same theme is continued. A great battle, really, between Yahweh and Baal, a great battle in public, just as the drought is about to come to, the, to an end, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, Elijah says to King Ahab. And the people show up along with the prophets of Baal, and a contest ensues involving fire, involving lightning. The God who answers by fire he is God. That's the agreement that Elijah makes with the gathered crowd. Why fire? Why lightning? Because Baal is a storm god. His weapons are thunder and lightning. We saw him holding that thunderbolt just a moment ago. That's why the contest on Mount Carmel involves lightning. The question is, can Baal really bring lightning on the earth. Because if he can't, Elijah says, he's not a living God. He's only an idea. He's only a fiction. So, the contest begins in chapter 18. The prophets of Baal call on their God throughout the whole morning, and their calls go unanswered. There's nobody at home they dance around the altar they have built to try to get Baal's attention, but Baal does not answer. Shout louder, Elijah suggests in verse 27. Surely he is a god, Elijah says. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. He has a wicked sense of humor, does Elijah. A real God would be able to answer prayer, obviously. A living God would not need his worshipers to shout, and shouting louder would make no difference. Because a real and living God would not have to deal with purely human limitations. A real God would not be prevented from answering prayer because he was deep in thought or on a journey or asleep. You may remember what Psalm 121 says, He who watches over you will not slumber. He will neither slumber nor sleep. That's a living God. <clears throat> no human limitations there. A living God might be found deep in thought, but his deep, deep thought would not make him oblivious to prayer. A living God would not be found on a journey or asleep, would not be found to be busy. And this is where, by the way, the wickedness of Elijah's humor really becomes uh, obvious, because actually here, this is intended as a particularly naughty joke by the prophet Elijah. <coughs> the Hebrew word here, busy, refers to somebody, if I may put this delicately, somebody attending to bodily functions, somebody relieving himself. That's what the word busy refers to. <clears throat> Perhaps Baal is in the toilet, Elijah suggests, or having a lunchtime nap or daydreaming. Maybe that's why. He's not answering. Shout louder. And so they do. They shout louder. They slash themselves with swords and spears. 
they continue this frantic behavior through the entire day and into the evening, all to no avail. Their day ends as it began, and we notice what is said both uh, in verse 26 and verse 29. There was no response, no one answered, and in verse 29, to, just to, to underline it, no one paid attention. And now Elijah gets his turn in verse 30. Three times he has the altar and the offering drenched with water, just to make a point, right? Saturated with water now. It's a very damp sacrifice. He's making sure everyone knows what comes next is a miracle. There's no possible way you can light this thing, you know, in normal ways. No shouting, no dancing, no ritual self-mutilation. Elijah simply prays. It's not even a very long prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that would get you noticed in the church prayer meeting. It's not the kind of prayer that would get you extra spiritual points, you know, in the race towards sainthood. It's a very brief prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That's all it was. And God does. Lightning falls from heaven out of a clear blue sky, mind you. Particularly fierce lightning burns up all the sacrifice, but it also burns up the wood, the stones, and the soil, and even the water in the trench. Baal may be pictured as throwing lightning from heaven, but that's only symbolism. That's only religion. <clears throat> the living God of Israel, the creator of the whole cosmos, actually sends lightning from heaven. And the people watching get the point. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. <coughs> Excuse me. What a wonderful thing it is when ministry is going well. What a wonderful thing when we prophesy or we preach and people fall on their face and say, the Lord, He is God. How fantastic when we take a stand for God against the majority, perhaps even against the whole culture, and we are vindicated by God in public, everyone sees that this is so. How easy then to believe that God loves us. After all, the signs of it are all around. Everywhere we look, we see blessing. There may be a drought, you know, generally, but not where we're ministering. There may be fierce opposition to the gospel, but not where we're preaching, doing our evangelism. Everyone else may be struggling down in the valley of Baal worship, but up here on Mount Carmel, we're just having a tremendous time. Thank you very much. A mountaintop experience. Of course, God loves us. We're being faithful. We're obeying His commands. We're standing up heroically for the kingdom. Why would God not love us and bless us? Of course, He's showing us favor. Why would he not? <clears throat> now, I don't know what Elijah was thinking when he left Mount Carmel, but he might well have been thinking some of what I have just said. He's a human being after all. On that famous day when the prophets of Baal are revealed as fraudsters to the entirety of Israel, and revival has broken out, as it were, and everyone is acknowledging that the Lord is God, he would be a very unusual man if he were not thinking to himself, you know, this prophetic ministry thing, it's really going rather well. I'll lay you money, not much money, I'm a Scotsman, but I'll lay you money that that's what Elijah is thinking. It's over. The forces of darkness have been defeated, Let's head for Ahab's military base in Jezreel, that's where he goes, and celebrate 
the victory. A quick jog over the mountains. He's a fit guy. A celebratory non-alcoholic beer in the horse and chariot tavern. That well-known Jezreel night spot. And then home to bed. The worship of God has been resurrected in Israel. We can all sleep more easily tonight. Now, of course, that's not actually what happens in this narrative. What actually happens next in this story is that Queen Jezebel, the real power in the kingdom, proves to be much more resilient in the face of trouble than her very weak husband, Ahab. Ahab's a very passive figure in this story. Jezebel is the real power in this story. So all the men have failed to take on Elijah, but she's not bothered. There she is, a bedraggled, defeated Ahab, comes crawling home to her, tail between the legs, reports to her what nasty old Elijah has just done to him, and she takes decisive action. Elijah may think that the gods of the Sidonians have been defeated. King Ahab may believe that the gods of the Sidonians have been defeated, but Jezebel's faith remains absolutely firm. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life, Elijah, like one of those Baal prophets. The gods are very much alive still to Jezebel. She takes an oath in their name, and now we have an interesting moment. Pretend you don't know how the story goes on, just for a moment. What do you expect now of Elijah? Here's a man who has single-handedly taken on Ahab and all of his religious functionaries, and he has won. Here is a man with such steadfast faith that he has been able to resist the peer pressure of almost the entire culture to conform to the new religious arrangements. He has faithfully continued in the old ways. Here is a man with faith enough to live without normal sustenance in a desert, in a foreign land, a man with enough faith to raise the dead. Here is a man who in this narrative always obeys the word of the Lord and does nothing unless the Lord commands him. So what do we expect? I think we expect him to stand firm. I think we expect him to ignore Jezebel's word because it's not God's word. I think we expect him to go on to finish this war against idolatry and maybe to perform further miracles in the process. But it's not what happens. In 1 Kings 19, we find a prophet in retreat a prophet in a state of mental and emotional collapse, a prophet in a spiritual crisis and in a deep depression. Elijah, we are told, was afraid, or another possible translation, he saw how things were and he ran for his life. A man of faith, a man of courage, who trusts God for miracles. He only hides in this story when God tells him to, but in chapter 19, he runs. The word of one opponent is enough to send him into a prophetic tailspin. 
her words, Jezebel's words, achieve what all the words of the many men in this story could not achieve. And he runs without any word of the Lord telling him to do so. In fact, the word of the Lord does not reappear in chapter 19 until verse 9. And when the word of the Lord comes, it is a question, what on earth are you doing here, Elijah? The word of the Lord. I didn't send you here. What are you doing? And later, verse 15, the divine command, go back. Go back north. Go back to your ministry. This journey away from Jezreel is not on God's agenda. It is not God's Word that produces it. It is the Word of Jezebel. And Elijah runs. What an extraordinary thing. And yet, what an absolutely wonderful thing that this story is found in Scripture. Now, why do I say wonderful? Let me tell you, it's because it's real. This story describes reality. The whole Bible describes reality. And not just the reality of the living God, but the reality of the lives of God's people. And what the Bible tells us about life is this, that even the most dedicated people, even the most wonderfully brave and visionary leaders are never other than mortal, frail human beings, capable of great heights, but perfectly capable of great lows. Even prophets with their mountaintop experiences can find themselves shortly afterwards down in the valley of despair, for human beings are always and resolutely mortal beings in Scripture. They are not gods. There's no idea in the Bible that the purpose of our human life is to escape our humanity and transcend it and rise above flesh and blood and enter into a world of pure spirit or some such thing. There were people in the early church who thought that. They were called heretics. The spiritual path is described for us in Scripture in terms of honest and broken and often faltering attempts to be a human being, a person made in the image of God in all of the physical, intellectual, spiritual, emotional dimensions that this involves. So it is for all of us. So it is with almost all the characters we come across in Scripture. Abraham who trusts in God, but then makes his own arrangements with Sarah and Hagar about the son thing. David, a man after God's own heart, but he falls into adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon, who was so very wise, but not wise enough to keep God's law. Elijah, great man of God, but just a human being, unable to deal with the unexpected. After everything that's happened in this story, here is Jezebel, for goodness sake, is she mad? After everything that's happened, Jezebel, a firm believer, a Sidonian fundamentalist, swearing by her gods, impervious to evidence, even if her own husband lays it before her. And Elijah realizes it's not going to be as easy as I thought. And the shock of that realization, I think, causes him, for the very first time in the story, to forget to think theologically. He simply reacts, and he runs. And I say, how like us? How like me? So off he runs with his servant, and uh, he runs a long way from Jezreel in the north all the way down to Beersheba in the very south of the promised land. And when he gets there, he keeps on running. He heads alone into the desert, 
He's looking for a lonely place in which to die, an isolated man under an isolated broom tree. He has had enough, he says in verse 4. He's a bit like Jonah. You remember Jonah, another prophet of God, traveling to a far-flung place without a divine travel permit. Jonah commanded to go and love his enemies. We've been talking about that, haven't we? Jonah, told to go and preach to the Assyrians, Israel's bitter enemies. They had done horrendous things to people, abominable things to people. And Jonah is told to go and preach. And he's not up for it, really, to be honest. So he's told, go up and go to Nineveh. He gets up to go down to Joppa, And when he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into a boat, and then he goes down into the hold of the boat. He's told to get up, and he keeps going down, and he heads for Tarshish. That's Jonah. Told to go one way, goes the opposite way. And in much the same way, Elijah now heads for the desert beyond Beersheba, and here we discover a rather remarkable thing, a very wonderful thing, and really the focal point of my talk this morning. God loves us, so loves us in the crucible of ministry, when our ministry is going well, when we are victorious, when we are successful, when we are making great advances for the sake of the gospel, God so loves us in the crucible of our ministries when they are going well. But here's the question, does God love us in our ministries when we are failing? Does God love us in our ministries when we are failing, or at least appear to be failing, when nothing much is happening, when things are going wrong? when we find abiding sin in our lives that seems recalcitrant and difficult to deal with, when we have no faith, when we do not obey, when we find ourselves in ministry in despair, does God love us then? And that is the question raised by 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, we see a very, very wonderful thing happening in this story. Elijah has abandoned God's path for him at the moment. Like Jonah on that ship headed for Tarshish, his current preference is to die. That's how bad it is. Doesn't want to go on. Elijah has for the moment abandoned God. But look at this story and see it and be amazed by it because God has not abandoned Elijah. If the Bible understands the human side of this divine human relationship, very much in terms of humanness and dust and frailty and sinfulness and waywardness and fickleness, that's the human side. On the other side of this equation, Scripture places a person of a very different character. This is a person of eternally constant being and character who never succumbs to the darkness. This is a person not inclined to express anger and impatience, but much more intent in his grace and in his love in seeking the lost sheep until he finds them. This is a person of patience and long-suffering who does not abandon people because they fall short of his expectations and indeed often fall short of their own. This is the God that we have been learning about this week. This is the God who really, really, really exists. It's not Baal. That's a fiction. But the living God, what's the living God like? The living God's like that. And so here in 1 Kings 19, 
the runaway Elijah is juxtaposed with the gentle seeker who is the Lord God of Israel himself. Jezebel has sent, you remember, at the beginning of the chapter, a messenger to Elijah. And that messenger induces panic in the prophet Elijah. The Hebrew word behind that word messenger is malak, a messenger. In response to this terrible messenger, God now sends a messenger, a malak, of his own, indicated in our uh, translations, normally by the word angel, which I think is a kind of unhelpful word, actually, to be honest. I mean, most of us, when we hear the word angel, have a kind of very definite image in our minds, do we not? It involves wings and harps and stuff. We have to understand that in the Hebrew, this word malak simply means a messenger. So, Jezebel sends a hostile messenger once. In response, God sends a friendly messenger twice. And what's the message? Interesting question. What message, what message would you have liked to have sent Elijah? At this point in the story, had it been you, I think I would have sent uh, possibly this message, come on Elijah, get a grip, get back on the job for goodness sake. Or, more spiritually, Elijah, you need to rouse yourself from sleep and pray. Or, Elijah, you need more Bible study to be more prepared for adverse circumstances. I might have said that. Perhaps we think that's what God should have said, actually. Sometimes I think we want to be more spiritual than the Almighty God Himself. We have some very strange views of spirituality sometimes. Some of them are not very biblical. Ideas of spirituality that set it opposite the physical. Ideas of spirituality that are all about ignoring the physical or controlling or subjugating the physical. All for the glory of God, we think. But mercifully, God does not subscribe to our often faulty views of spirituality. So God says none of the things that I would have said to Elijah. Have you noticed in this passage, there is in, in this passage no criticism at all from God at this moment, no criticism of the fleeing prophet. There is no blame yet being apportioned. There are no exhortations to be more spiritual. What does the angel actually say? Get up and eat. And then go back to sleep. And then, get up and eat some more. Sometimes, that's what we need on our own journey, you know, just ordinary things. When I was younger, I used to get very um, bothered sometimes by my internal spiritual condition. And I was reading books that would talk about concepts like spiritual depression. And reading those made me even more depressed. And I realized after a while that at least half of my problem was nothing to do with spiritual things. It was a lack of a good diet and a lack of a good night's sleep. Because I was a teenager, you know, and a student, and you know how that goes, right? Very unhealthy lifestyle altogether. So, God offers Elijah these ordinary things. And he takes these ordinary things, and he is refreshed, and he's able to go on. The ordinary things of life are not to be despised. We cannot despise them without serious consequences to ourselves as other people. We cannot do it in our Christian lives in general. We cannot do it in our ministry. Sometimes we think it's just more spiritual to keep pushing, 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 pushing. It only ever leads to burnout, you know, 
and bitterness and resentment and cynicism. We're not made like that. We're not made to be non-physical beings. That's what's going on here. Elijah is burned out, and he doesn't need prayer at the moment, doesn't need spiritual discipline, doesn't need anything beyond what is normal human stuff. He needs food and drink and sleep, and God, who knows these things, provides these things. And through this initial bit of the story, he says nothing to Elijah about his journey and what is wrong with his journey. He simply points out very gently that Elijah is not particularly well prepared for the journey, which is true. It's too much. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. These words play on Elijah's words earlier. I have had enough, Lord. I want to die. Hebrew word rav. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. The same Hebrew word. We talked about wordplay in Hebrew Scripture before this week. And now we discover that actually there's more to this journey than Elijah had imagined. Elijah was heading for the desert to die. And God says, fantastic first stage of the journey, Elijah, wrong-headed, mind you, but since we're here, why don't we just go on to Mount Horeb? Elijah had no intention, I believe, of going to Mount Horeb, but God gives him what he needs to get there, and so we are reminded, and this goes back to our earlier sessions, we are reminded, are we not, that God is in control of all our journeys, even when we are off track, in the desert, under the broom tree, wanting to die, God is still God. That's just how good God is. He brings even our wrong-headed journeys to a good ending. He provides for us along the way. That is who the living God is, the God who provided for Israel on their way to the mountain of God after the Exodus, the God who provides for Elijah as he journeys here, and the God who is still our God and who walks with each one of us in the same way, in the midst of ministry, as well as everywhere else, in the midst of our lives, even when they are not going at all well. And so, Elijah, I'm sure to his surprise, finds himself at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where the Ten Commandments and the law are first given. He arrives at Mount Horeb. He's still not a person in good shape. You see this in verse 9. What does he choose for his lodgings for the night? He chooses a cave. Now, <laughs> that is not a great location for somebody struggling with depression. I can't imagine any counselor recommending such a thing. I'm feeling very down at the moment. Well, I have this cave I could send you to. The cave is a very dark place for somebody who's still in a dark mood. And the darkness of Elijah's mood is well indicated by what he says in response to God's question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And we get this little outburst. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. To which I would have responded, fooey. But then I'm not very sympathetic as a person. What's going on here? This is a man with a very selective memory. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, O oh God. But, but haven't we just seen all the Israelites restored to faith on Mount Carmel? The Israelites have broken down all your altars, O oh God. But, but didn't you just actually rebuild one on Mount Carmel just a moment ago? They have put your prophets to death with the sword. Well, yes, but... But actually, the most recent casualties have been the prophets of Baal. I am the only one left. Well, that's simply not true. Other faithful people have survived, we learn in this story, 
In just a moment, we read about 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Selective memory. Elijah mentions none of the things that have gone right in the past, but only what has gone wrong. And I tell you, I just think that is very real. I think that's very, very real. I call this, and UCS Lewis addicts, or fans if you prefer, uh, will appreciate this. I call this puddle glum spirituality. Do you know this character from the Narnia Chronicles? Some of you, I'm sure, do. Puddle Glum is the fellow in the silver chair uh, who has a knack for looking on the gloomy side of things. Puddle Glum, we are told, often pointed out that bright mornings brought on wet afternoons and you couldn't expect good times to last. You recognize that, perhaps? A bit of Celtic culture there. Well, Elijah out Puddle Glum's Puddle Glum. Because at least Puddle Glum also said, to his credit, I am a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face on it. Elijah's not even attempting to put the best face on things in this story. I think we should call Elijah's view of things um, hyper Puddle Glumism. It's a deeply human tendency. Perhaps that's why there's so much in the Bible about the importance of memory to a healthy spirituality. Have you noticed that? How often you're told in Scripture to remember stuff? We used to sing a hymn that was along these lines, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will amaze you what the Lord has done. Just bring them to mind, focus on the positives. Well, Elijah is not singing from that hymn sheet here, and oftentimes we don't either, selective memory. Elijah's great problem here is that he's forgotten. He's forgotten to think theologically, and the consequence is that in his mind, Jezebel's resistance has turned what was a massive victory into an overwhelming defeat. Nothing has changed about the facts, you understand. What's changed is in here and in here in Elijah. And he needs to be reminded of the past to remember who God is and what God has done, and that's what God sets out to do with this wonderful revelation of himself in this same chapter. Another mountaintop experience to match the one on Mount Carmel, a reminder of the power of God, first of all, but also another important message too. Certainly the living God is a God of spectacular power, but notice the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. Where is God to be found? He's to be found in the still small voice. The NIV says gentle whisper. And the point, I think, is this, that Mount Carmel was about God's spectacular ways in the world, but Mount Horeb is about God's quiet ways in the world, and Elijah needs to realize there's more than one thing going on here, that God works in the world, certainly in the spectacular, but actually more usually in the ordinary. Victory over Jezebel will not finally come in this story through the spectacular. Victory over Jezebel in this story comes about as the result of political process. It's rather boring, but that's how it actually happens. And we need that same balance. I remember a few years ago, some of you will be, remember perhaps the Toronto Blessing. People kept coming up to me. I was in Edinburgh at the time, and they would talk about the Toronto Blessing. And apparently, one of the things people used to say to each other on Monday morning uh, in Toronto Blessing was, did God show up? And I would say, where do you imagine God is normally then? Because if you, if you think that God only shows up in the spectacular, I imagine that your normal theology is that God is somewhere else. It's very strange. It's really quite unbiblical, if I may say. The point that Elijah had to grasp was this. 
that if we, and we need to grasp this too, I believe, if we are to endure in our ministries, come out the other side of trouble and disappointment and failure, what Elijah needed to understand was that God's overall strategy in the world is always longer term, always much more subtly conceived than we can possibly imagine. God works in the world through the devastating gentle whisper as well as the all-consuming fire. And for Elijah in this story, that means that he must be content to be part of God's story and not the whole plan. Where he has run south to Beersheba, we are told he is to go back the way he came to the desert of Damascus. And one of the things he must do is to appoint his successor because Elijah is on the way out. And I think he finds that a very difficult concept in this story. I absolutely love this narrative. Elijah is our great teacher in 1 Kings 17 and 18, our great teacher about faith and courage in adversity, our great teacher about believing in and worshiping the one true and living God, even though the entire culture should go a different way. He's a great teacher for this moment in the history of the post-Christian West in particular. Elijah teaches these important things to us in his strength. But he is also our great teacher in 1 Kings 19. In this chapter, he teaches us important things in his weakness. It's in his weakness, even more clearly than in his strength, that we penetrate to the very heart of who God is in Scripture. God so loves us in the very crucible of ministry, even in our weakness. And the story of Elijah proves that this is true and shows us something of the depths of that gentle love. And I am very thankful that this is so, and I hope you are too. And I hope that as you continue in your various ministries, long after New Horizon is over, that you will do so with these great biblical lessons in mind. It is not for our success in ministry that God loves us. God just loves us. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.